Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And boy, oh boy, Santosh, am I excited. It's, there's been a lot going on this week. And more importantly, a lot going on that is not related to the pandemic. <laughs> Wait, I can hear our listeners running. <laughs> we'll we'll do more COVID stuff later, people. Seriously, Josh and I are just a burned out, and b you know we we often do this podcast for us, and. If we're not happy, then we're not going to talk about it. So we're sick and tired of talking about the COVID pandemic. So we're going to talk about cool stuff that is not COVID. Good news is, home listening audience, now that I'm snowed in, I've had lots of time to research and think not only about yesterday, but about tomorrow. And you know what? It's an alternate week. And you know what that means? What does that mean, Josh? Thank you for asking, Santosh. It means it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Journal Club. Yeah! Yeah! That's right. I hope you're all doing Kermit Arms at home. We'll know if you don't, Um, especially if you're listening on Amazon, because Jeff Bezos taught us how to, you know, watch you. Yeah, but now that he's retired from Amazon to pursue killing Superman, we'll have lots of (laughs) free time. So this oh. week, <laughs> oh Lex Luthor reference. That's so fantastic. <laughs> this week, the Journal Club theme is uh, one. I'll admit I've recycled the title once or twice, but it's just such a good title. And we are mm. entering the world of tomorrow. Let's begin with our first article. Uh, let me set the scene for you. 
Santosh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's 2050, and you're due for your monthly physical exam. But times have changed, technology's advanced, so you no longer have to endure a finger in the butt, a needle in your vein, and a week of waiting for your blood test results. Okay. <laughs> All right. Instead, the nurse brings you back, takes you into an airtight chamber wired up to a massive computer and tells you the doctor will sniff you now. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah. It's not a dog doctor. <laughs> We're not far enough in the future where we have like, you know, genetically engineered, like human-like dogs that stand on two feet and get medical degrees and stuff. Although with CRISPR, meh. But no, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I not did. with CRISPR. <laughs> I kid. Here's the thing. Animal animal diagnosticians, as wonderful as they are, do have their problems. First, they have to be trained. You don't want your doctor pooping on the rug. Secondly, training large numbers of animals that compared to humans don't live very long is expensive, time-consuming, and ultimately somewhat futile. Plus, every time you want to add another disease to the analytics, you'd have to train all of the dogs or cats or ferrets or whatever again. So... How do we get to a sniffing doctor? Well, let me tell you about our first article, Deep Nose, the artificial intelligence sniffer. Uh, Oh, so robot nose. Robot nose. Okay. Uh, And a robot nose disconnected from a robot body, I'm actually okay with. This doesn't fall under my (laughs) usual massive distrust of Skynet. Right. Well, it's going to be connected to... Some sort of probably not generalized artificial intelligence, but at least a specific AI that can sort through the sent data and actually generate a, a result. Well, once here's here's the short concept, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the research. So as you rest in this airtight chamber, the aromatic molecules. Uh, well, well, not I mean, I, I could breathe. There's as oxygen you being this, As you rest in this airtight chamber with air holes, okay. the <laughs> molecules, yeah. the molecules you exhale or emit from your body and skin slowly mm. drift into a variety of sensors in the box. Behind the scene, the electronic brain will start analyzing and crunching through the molecules, comparing them to the olfactory database. So once it's got a nose full, it'll match your odors to the medical conditions that cause them and generate a printout of your health, which you will then go over with your human doctor. Now, this is all, you know, speculation and sci-fi, at least in terms of how I've structured it. But Alexei Kolikov, a researcher at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, who studies the human olfactory system, is looking into making this a possible reality. So he is working on creating a database, a database of volatile molecules by their smellable properties, which is a fun sentence to say. <laughs> yeah, and this is kind of neat. We think of the olfactory senses that we have, you and me as human beings, and then we know that dogs have you know, what we have magnified by about 200x in terms of the number of scents they can identify and how faint the smell can be where they can still sense it, where we can't. But here, these are all chemicals after all. They're they're small molecules that go and bind to a receptor and then that 
triggers signaling going to the brain and recognition, what's going on. There's no reason why we can't replicate that with an electronic nose as long as the sensor is accurate and the database is reliable. So, and, and by the way, Josh, we do this all the time anyway with, um, for instance, mass spectrometry, where we will put, you know, a solution or something through a mass spectrometer. And based on, you know, the, the size of the particles and their charge and all that kind of a thing, the computer determines what is in there. Um, we can do that for proteins and genes and uh, so many other cool things now in chemistry and biochemistry. So this is just a different way of kind of applying the same theory. Now, let's give a couple examples. I mean, aside from the obvious jokes about the instantly recognizable smell of C. diff or the metallic <laughs> tang of blood and things like mm -hmm. that, you know, how sensitive could this really be? It's easy to think of a robotic dog or deep nose saying, oh, you know, I passed gas in the chamber and you can tell whether or not I have colon cancer. But for example, <laughs> people with Parkinson's disease produce a high amount of sebum, which is a waxy, lipid-rich fluid ex uh, excreted by the glands of the skin. Now, some human super smellers can detect this. And, oh. and deep nose could grab this information from thin air. So if your skin produces a high amount of this waxy chemical, that would indicate maybe we need to screen you for Parkinson's or detect diseases earlier. Uh, we could even go back to the ancient history of looking at increased sugar can give off that fruity aroma from diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, mm -hmm. you would hopefully be able to detect, you know, fluctuations in blood sugar long before they become noticeable to human noses. But a wound with a nasty smell, we know, means it's infected. Bad breath can signal a host of ailments. Most of the time, we don't sniff our patients for a variety of reasons. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, there's... But as we said, we already have animals that have been trained to sniff tuberculosis, uh, Parkinson's, colon cancer, um, and even things like various drugs. So... It's not inconceivable that you could take these existing organic chemistry molecules, feed them into a database, and compare them. And as long as everybody produces roughly the same range of smells for a given disease, this becomes an insanely specific and sensitive diagnostic tool. Now, I should say it's hard to interpret tests always without context. So I, it'll probably still be really important for a human doctor uh, or perhaps, a, you know, a highly intelligent type of robot doctor to come in and get a, a actual clinical history of what's going on. Um, for instance, if the patient doesn't have any family history of diabetes and there's no signs or symptoms of diabetes and you cross-check the smell also with like serum glucose or something like that, then, you know, you'd be getting a false positive with the scent, for instance. You wouldn't want to have this type of testing be oversensitive. And that's as equal a danger as if it is not sensitive enough to pick up diseases that you want to detect. So I still think as a test, it's super cool, but context with a history, physical exam 
will still be important, Josh. So yes, you will still have to touch your patients. Well, let's talk about how they're trying to build this database just a little bit. Uh, this team run by researcher Rinberg's lab uses genetically modified mice whose olfactory neurons are tinted with fluorescent proteins that light up when they engage in response to an odor. So the cool. team, <laughs> I know so you cool. love your mice. You love your pinky no, no. of the brain. <laughs> it's not just that. It's just like the idea of going in there and the mice are scuttling around. And then, you know, because you have a, a little, you know, uh, ventilator, you know, kind of going around actually supplying air to all the cages. So you release the smell and all of a sudden, like, it's like Christmas. <laughs> you just, you're looking and you sit and you just see the mice just like light up blue, red, green, yellow. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, for example, yeah. you know, the, the mice sniff a nose and it excites receptors 27, 72, and 112, while dog poop excites a different set of receptors, but maybe roses and poop activate some common receptors, you know, a, a poop by any other name. <laughs> That's so, so neat. I mean, I'm not saying that the whole mouse will change colors. Of course, they, they unfortunately and probably have to either sedate the mouse and do uh, in situ microscopy where they can actually just put a scope up the nose and look for fluorescence. Um, or I'm not sure if they have to euthanize the mice and actually you know, dissect out those receptors and look at them under the microscope. Right now they're, they're doing very small microchips and looking through a sort of a, a functional MRI style window, but yes, we are cool years and years away from being able to create deep nose and the smell of it. <laughs> I love it. I will say Josh that, that, the heterogeneity, meaning the different types of people that you need to put into this database, that's super, super important. We have failed in the past because we have limited a database to, for instance, like only Caucasian people or only men. And that's actually messed up our ability for you know, other types of technologies like this, for instance, facial recognition or fingerprints. So, yeah. So uh, not to mention confounding factors. Like I said, if somebody's gassy, will that throw off the ability to diagnose a disease if someone's wearing perfume? So there's a lot of really interesting engineering problems to tackle, but, you know, we're just doing an intro on, on something that may be coming down the pipeline because this is a world of tomorrow episode. And that means mm -hmm. I don't have to do quite as much deep diving research. It simply doesn't exist yet. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to our next story, equally cool, but also a little bit of body horror. Mm -hmm. A team of researchers from France, Colombia, and the U.S. has developed a type of yarn from human skin cells that can be <laughs> woven into human textiles. Oh, God. <laughs> this was so much fun. We Now, we have tissue thread, right? So we have dissolvable sutures, but these are currently made from uh, animal parts, right? cat gut, for instance. But this is something else, right, Josh? Yeah, this is taking human cells, uh, fibroblasts, and which we'll talk about in a little bit more, 
assembling them into essentially human skin and tight enough and in chains enough that you're making human skin yarn. If that doesn't incite <laughs> a nice little shudder. It puts well, the then, lotion on skin. <laughs> right. I, I think I saw this in a movie <laughs> with Hannibal Lecter once. Or, or in Texas and a chainsaw was involved. Yeah, um, yeah. There, that was another one where there was human textiles. Yeah, sure. So here's here's the brief abstract, and then I'll give you a little bit more of the study. They managed to create a variety of textiles out of human fibroblasts, which are cells that normally assist with the production of collagen and other fibers. And the point of doing this, aside from just the sheer body horror, is that <laughs> they will not be rejected because they're natural human cells. So they grew skin cell fibroblasts specifically into sheets of material that were then fashioned into desired shapes. Uh, and one of the earliest uses was just cut into strings for applications like, as you said, suturing. The suture doesn't have to be removed. It, you don't have to worry about it dissolving or promoting irritation or inflammation because it's just skin. It's you're adding skin to skin. So... The idea of having it as a suture is cute and a little creepy, but where it would really be useful would be into closing fully biological tissue engineered vascular grafts. So implanting Ooh. into arteries, veins, and combining this biomaterial with a textile assembly, you have a lot of versatility in what you can do with it. That's really fantastic. I... I love the idea that, especially if uh, it can be uh, an autograft, so to speak, meaning that you got rid of problems of compatibility between people by just harvesting the person cells the same way that you would for a skin graft. You know, you, you take a skin from one part of the body and, and then patch another part. But this is so, so cool to me because you could, if, if you had enough time, you could actually harvest these fibroblasts from the host into which it's going to go. So, you know, one person donating their own fibroblasts in order to grow more of these in culture, the, the yarn, and then you get stitched up with yourself. <laughs> That's no. so cool. This is sort of the next step on from previous studies we've talked about with the ghost heart or transparent cells where you create a scaffolding for your mm -hmm. newly transplanted or cleaned tissue to grow onto. But eventually that scaffolding has to dissolve or you have to heal before the scaffolding dissolves. By using human skin or tissue shaped into this, you have the scaffolding as long as you need it and it grows into the healing tissue. Nine, yeah. So you don't, for instance, have a piece of metal or Gore-Tex or something like that, that, you know, you can get fibrosis over or an adhesion, or it could shift, um, or even restrict the growth of the vessel that, you know, you're trying to patch super important, you know, in pediatrics. So that potentially, you wouldn't have to go back in to restent or repair it because, the patch or the repair will grow with the person. That's awesome.
In the study that you'll find linked in the show notes, there is a wonderful, if horrifying series of figures called Human Yarn Production. Uh, sounds like a great <laughs> chapter for a horror novel, but a fresh sheet yeah. detached from the flask after eight weeks of culture stretched over a frame. Then 17 wide and five millimeter wide ribbons. Five millimeter wide ribbons of human fibroblasts is insanely thick when you think about mm-hmm. how you know, how small human cells tend to be. And then these ribbons, thick as they are, can then be twisted to obtain threads or make a continuous three-meter-long ribbon of human skin. Uh, so, so cool. Yeah, so they use some of these to suture nude rat skin because why not get rat involved? <laughs> so they use this to create an anastomosis, which is a connecting channel between two vessels that normally are not connected. And they observed some light bleeding was observed, but on the whole, hemostasis or stoppage of bleeding was achieved with simply dabbing with gauze. Uh, So they did this in the nude rats and said, okay, you know, we've created these structures that are organic, that will, you know, it can be sold at Whole Foods. Uh, They're organic. (laughs) They have strength. They have flexibility. They do not promote auto-rejection. And mm-hmm. most importantly, they work for the functions we put them in. So it's a lot of really, really interesting, if highly technical engineer. It's almost more of an engineering paper than a than a medical one. But yeah. the different ways they have to use it. And this is my favorite. It can be knotted, crocheted, knitted, weaved, wound. And it gives examples of all of these. And if you didn't know it was skin, it looks almost like a... Uh, like a wet soba noodle. <laughs> God. Dude, people are eating their dinners. I'm presuming. Not listening Some. to this show there. <laughs> they should know. You should know better by now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let me give a shout out. I got to say, uh, Dr. Uh, Manyan or Magnan. Uh, all, at all in Acta Biomaterialia. So actually, Josh, you're absolutely right. This is a biomaterials or a material science journal from Elsevier. And the uh, the group's at the University of Bordeaux in France. So if anybody's interested in, you know, knitting together human tissue and learning things like material science of human tissues and, and these uh, what they call CAMs or CAMs, all right, called cell assembled uh, extracellular matrix, then head on over to Bordeaux. Yeah. Moving on to our next study, a brief callback to Bezos as Lex Luthor was inspired by a mm. picture of him taken holding these two giant robotic arms with an evil Luthery grin. And it got me oh, yeah. thinking because. John Hopkins has just put out a press release, or relatively recently, within the last year or so, in a Mm -hmm. first where a patient has managed to control two prosthetic arms using nothing but his thoughts. Let's get into this. We've talked before about the the goal to create a functional Lucant. Um, Santosh, what's a Lucant? Lucant, you're referring to Star Wars where Luke has his 
<laughs> hand cut off by dear old dad uh as as many star wars characters go through they, i was about I, I to say as many parents do like, have no, you cut no, off your children's no, hands no. No. no no hey no no not no i mean no <laughs> A, I don't have a lightsaber, and B, if I didn't, if I did have a lightsaber, I wouldn't use it to cut off my kids' hands. And there, I'm on record saying it. So, <laughs> I like that the first note. objection was A, I don't have a lightsaber. Of course, I have. <laughs> oh, and also, I would never do that to my children. No, no, <laughs> it's important to prioritize. <laughs> and somehow, like aboard the Millennium Falcon, which is a stripped down, like smuggling ship, they had the ability to put together like a, a hand. So the Luke hand actually looks like a proper hand, um, skin tones all the way in. But if you open it, you know, he's got a little access panel in his wrist. Then what you have is mechanical interfaces, um, like springs and, you know, shafts and cams and stuff that substitute for our bones and tendons. Okay. But most importantly, Josh, two things. One, he was able to move his fingers just, you know, the same way he would his own hand, meaning sending motor impulses from his brain down his arm into the hand and just move just like he normally would. Number two, it also had feedback the same way ours does to at least to pain they showed the robot like pricking his fingers you know gently poking them to say oh you know can you feel that can you feel that and so he also had the the uh, sensory pathways to feed the uh, sensations in the hand back to his brain which is super important if you want to control a hand so we're not quite at sensory feedback yet, but researchers from John Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory and their School of Medicine in conjunction have for the first time, and this is the real key part, demonstrated simultaneous control of two of the world's most advanced prosthetic limbs through a brain-machine interface. That's a lot to unpack. Uh, and they're also <laughs> developing... They're also developing strategies for providing sensory feedback for both hands at the same time using neurostimulation. So before I go into this, let me quickly break it down. Simultaneous control, you know, whether or not you're doing it with your thoughts or with joysticks, to be able to control one hand is already a pretty impressive engineering feat. To control sure. alternate hands is another level. To control two hands at the same time, like you're probably doing right now, saying, what are they talking about, is <laughs> insanely difficult. And that's why they're saying this is the most advanced prosthetic limb, not on the market. It is the most advanced prosthetic limb that currently exists. And they've linked up two of them, as well as found a way to connect that directly to the brain. And having a neuron to electronic circuit connection, while it seems easy on paper, is an insanely difficult feat of engineering. So these are the latest developments in revolutionizing prosthetics, uh, which is a program launched by DARPA, or the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, sort of the military research wing, to improve upper extremity prosthetic technologies and provide new means for users to operate them such as fingertip sensors for force acceleration, slip and pressure, 
And they started to say, what's the best way to give all this information back to the study participants? So they decided in a first-of-its-kind surgery, Dr. Stan Anderson's team at John Hopkins implanted intracortical microelectrodes on both sides of a patient's brain in the regions that control movement and touch sensation. How do we know what those regions are? We've had years and years of studying people who've had strokes. If we know exactly what regions are no longer functioning and what uh what muscle and functions in the body you lose when they're not functioning, that tells us where we can implant electrodes to stimulate an area in order to provide function. So a lot of this ties back to neurology research. Yeah, this is so cool. I love it. You you have the complexity because we've gone all the way back, Josh, even on our podcast, talking about how we had the chimpanzee, right? have the electrodes implanted to control a single robot arm with kind of minimal functionality. So it could move around in a few axes. And then I think it had just like a pinch kind of um, motion, right? But this being able to coordinate both limbs on both sides of the brain. And just like you said, we don't have that feedback yet that our bodies normally have, which is the the pain and the pressure sensors, the position sensors that we have to tell us, you know, how much our joints are flexing or extending, all those kinds of things. Without having that feedback, but still able to control these arms, that is so amazing. And uh, I, I'm excited for this. Now, he didn't have the arms like hooked up like to him, right? He, he, he just had the electrodes in his brain and then the arms were kind of separate. Right. So, I mean, and yeah. ultimately they're looking at being able to give people uh, who have had significant spinal injuries and are paraplegic or hemiplegic able to do things like tie their shoes or brush their teeth or do things that, you know, may require, you know, two hands or significant limb uh, or significant micro limb functionality. So it takes months and months of training to be able to control just a single limb. So they implanted these micro electrodes on both sides of the brain and then first study just the neural signals. What happens when the hand areas of the brain are stimulated? With all of these tests and the surgery, they've given a couple very important firsts in brain-machine interfaces. So it's been able to show a person's ability to, quote unquote, feel brain stimulation delivered to both sides of the brain at the same time. Want to know what that feels like? Hug yourself. <laughs> I, I oh. mean, utterly serious. Give yourself a big yeah. old hug, you know, and you've yeah, got yeah. your hands pressing to opposite sides of your body and your brain is receiving feedback from two different areas at once. And that's kind of what they did. So they showed how stimulation of left and right finger areas in the brain could be successfully controlled by physical touch to the multi to the modular prosthetic limb fingers, which shows mm -hmm. it. So it benefits from the first bilateral implant for recording and stimulation. And this took 96 electrodes to deliver a very focused and specific stimulation. And that's just the yeah. fingers. So there's a <laughs> lot of work to go. This is not something that we're going to, you know, see being given to upper extremity amputees anytime in the near future. But in the distant future, we are now another step closer to 
you know, Star Wars limbs or Terminator limbs, but they should never be given to just robots. There should always be a human brain involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so essentially, here's the next steps that we, we really have to do. We have to be able to miniaturize the electrode technology so that it can fit on the motor strips of the brain safely, you know, not causing rejection, not causing inflammation. You have to find a good way to wire it kind of down the arms so that they can control the limbs. All right. And then there are a couple of other uh, issues that we have to sort out in terms of the sensory part of it, because as much as you can become adroit and, you know, use the, the limbs, uh, as you would, for instance, Josh, if you like, if you wanted to pick up an egg, you know, like very delicately, yes, you could learn how to do that by, you know, looking down at the hand and, and gripping just as much as you wanted to, but it's so much more helpful if you can actually have the pressure sensors on your fingertips actually feel, you know, this is exactly how much pressure I need in order to pick it up and not just smush it. I like that. It's always something like carry an egg, inflate a balloon, like, you know, summer camp activities, yeah. <laughs> which makes me feel well, a lot yeah, better, which makes me feel a lot yeah. better about the future first edition of adorable little Terminators, you know, trying to wobble their way across the floor. <laughs> Although, have you seen, have you seen those robot dogs? Mm. Those things are getting scary talented. Yeah, especially because now they have arms, like it has a, it has a robot arm coming out of the top. And, uh, yeah, that's not, that's not creepy because it can, it can open doorknobs and stuff. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's three different world of tomorrow things where, you know, if first we may eventually have the ability to control prosthetic limbs and have feedback with them, which is a short step from cybernetic parts, you know, Ooh, joking aside, yeah, yeah. that's, it's a very short step from cybernetic parts. They could be attached, or when you're wounded, we could suture up our wounds closed with human yarn. And in between all of that, if there's something wrong with our organic non-cybernetic parts, you could tell by just walking into a smell chamber. That's a crazy sci-fi world, all of which is, for lack of a better word, within reach. For <laughs> our last story, it's not so much a world of tomorrow thing as just an interesting case report. Santosh, are you familiar with the Lazarus phenomenon? You're, you're talking about coming back from the dead? Yes, or, or but coming, not in a zombie way. He's, he's, no, 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 because Lazarus... So, okay, Lazarus is a character in the Bible uh, very famous for rising from the grave. Like, you know, he was dead, and then he's not dead. But he's not undead. He's just alive again. So the Lazarus phenomenon, or if you want to get the actual medical term, auto-resuscitation, is mm. something that does actually happen. Now, I'm going to be, I'm going to work on being a little more technical and serious than I usually am in journal clubs, because uh -oh. while this is fascinating, I don't want people to think it's common. It's not. <laughs> it's an extremely yeah. rare condition that is yeah. defined as a delayed unassisted return of spontaneous circulation after 
the cessation of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So that means we've given you CPR, you die anyway, we walk away, and a predetermined amount of time later, your circulation returns with nobody intervening. So we're going to talk <laughs> about one case report and what its significance is of this yeah. Lazarus phenomenon. And to be sure, th this has changed over time, right, Josh? Because the ability to tell whether a person is, is alive or dead accurately has changed over time. You know, now we have ECGs and rhythm strips, so you can actually tell that, oh, the heart's actually beating. It just needs, uh, you know, a little bit of a push where before, you know, people who were there, you know, not in asystole, but they were actually pumping, but you couldn't tell from like listening to the chest or something. And they'd suddenly come back to life. And, ah, it's a witch. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> so the definition has definitely changed because our ability to tell who's resuscitatable and who's not has evolved over time. Also, there are occasionally, you know, like mistakes made. For instance, if a person is hypothermic, if they're freezing um, and their, their body temperature is very, very low and, you know, you're in the heat of the moment and everything, you actually forget that in the midst of resuscitation, you haven't warmed the person. And later on, you know, they, they warm up and their metabolic functions just start kicking in and they wake up. You know, that's, that's something different from what we're about to talk about providing a nasty surprise to the local mortician. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. So this was, this was based on a series of case reports. It's not a, this particular case report is talking about one individual, a 67 year old male who came back to life after discontinuation of CPR. But according to one study, almost 50% of French emergency physicians claimed to have encountered auto-resuscitation in clinical practice. And the statement that more than one-third of Canadian intensivists have seen at least one case of auto-resuscitation means that it may be widely underreported. Again, I want to emphasize just because this occurs does not mean, you know, you're up and dancing and ready for the next Olympics. But a lot of enough French physicians, one out of every two French emergency room physicians has at some point said he's dead. And then a few moments later, sacre bleu, what is this? How on earth did I miss? Such a sweet return of spontaneous circulation. <laughs> I think that's how the song goes. Um, hashtag Disney don't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't parody laws. We'll go parody laws. And at least a third of Canadian intensivists. And, you know, there's no Disney movie that takes place in Canada yet. Frozen? Maybe? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's Scandinavia something or other. But sure, we can say northern Canada just for fun. What are they going to do? <laughs> Apologize. So a 67-year-old male collapsed with cardiac arrest outside his home. Now, oh. having an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest usually only has about a 7 to 10% survival rate, uh, a massive okay. cardiac arrest, you know, uh, and that's why we always emphasize, you know, time is tissue and bring someone in rather than waiting on it. Now, a nurse who was caring for this patient on a daily basis happened to pass by and immediately initiated CPR. 
the sooner you initiate CPR, the more likely someone is to survive an extra hospital cardiac arrest. So if you're out and you're having a heart attack and people are around, that ups, you know, if there's witnesses, that ups your chances of survival. If they start CPR, that further ups your chances of survival. Emergency medical services were called, you know, right away. An ambulance arrived within about three minutes and they were in a hospital within 10 minutes. So this was all pretty close to a local medical center. Resuscitation was performed according to our AL, our advanced life support algorithm, which includes chest compression, ventilation, intubation. And this person got a total of 20 defibrillations along with standard drug administration. That's a wow. high number of shocks. Yeah. And we don't always give shocks. Shocks are not given <laughs> to everybody having a heart attack. It's only for specific rhythms that are shockable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not like, you know, George Clooney ER or what's a better modern reference? Chicago something or other. Um yeah, it's it's not it's not like that where clear bang, you know, a lot of the time we're actually delivering chemical resuscitation. So we're using hormones like epinephrine uh, or atropine. So, yeah, the shocking thing uncommon and usually i don't know josh five or six and then we stop yeah 20 20 is yeah. much further than i think any physician i know personally would have done yeah. um so now this patient you know to give you an idea of their likelihood of expected survival had 31 pack years of smoking severe high blood pressure high cholesterol and a family history of heart disease they had previously had cardiac bypass surgery and uh, heart failure with an ejection fraction of 40, which is on the low end of normal. It's just at the bare minimum. And in the past three years, he had also been on hemodialysis three times a week. He had COPD with a terrible lung capacity, a giant aortic aneurysm. By all rights, this man should have died long. Like, I, again, 20 shocks for somebody with this medical history is beyond heroic efforts. It's it's very impressive, but also unexpected for it to have any real effect. Um, that's what's known as having a heavy comorbid burden. You have so many different diseases that your internal cell phone battery just doesn't have the energy to bring you back up to that charge. Now, nearly an hour after the cardiac arrest, uh, and all these defibrillations kind of in the field and in the way on the, the emergency room, he was defibrillated again. And eventually, the decision to stop resuscitation efforts was made at 16.02, so about an hour and 20 minutes from the original time when paramedics were called. Okay? Okay. About five minutes later... After all resuscitation had been stopped, the crowd empties out of the room. There's just a few nurses kind of cleaning things up, people documenting. Five minutes after all of that, slow, agonal, or gasping breathing was seen. Five minutes after that, so 10 minutes later, a, saint, a faint central pulse was detected, and an arterial blood, blood gas taken in the last minute had been analyzed and showed that this guy really had a. ABG that we call non-compatible with life. His ejection fraction was down to under 10%. And the decision not to resume treatment in spite of the very faint return of central pulse was upheld because it was felt that after this long 
attempting to be resuscitated, he would have hypoxic brain damage or colloquially be what most people consider a vegetable. Uh, brain damage from yeah. lack of oxygen. Right. Um, and hour after that, so now two hours and 10 minutes from the initial heart attack and an hour and 10 minutes after death was called, he blinked. Okay. He blinked and was able to squeeze hands on command. Okay. Three hours after that, he was sitting up in bed and eating soup. Look. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, yeah, I, I'm not much for the supernatural or that kind of thing, but th there are times where we come around. It's like, you know what? This person wasn't supposed to go today. Just plain and simple. Now, I know there's a lot of you out there who, you know, have kind of either deep seated religious convictions or hope or whatever reason where you say, well, then why would I ever make a family member, you know, do not resuscitate if there's this chance of happening? Well, Let's follow up the story. 22 hours after that initial cardiac arrest, so, you know, three mm -hmm. hours after he had auto-resuscitated, he was sitting up in bed eating soup and kind of interacting with people. 22 hours after that, he died. Um, oh, so, okay. You know, and again, keep in mind how many other medical problems I said he had before they even started. He was on dialysis, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, previous heart disease. So... It's not like this was instantly a return to life and everything was hunky-dory. He managed to kind of come back for that brief window of period, and then the sheer exhaustion of everything overtook him. So this is still not the kind of thing where even if the family was hoping and praying, you're just given a few extra hours with that person. So let's talk a little bit about this. Survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest remains poor, where, like I said, only about 7% are alive to discharge from the hospital. Predictors of survival are, as we said, witnessed, whether bystanders or paramedics, CPR, shockable rhythm, and return of spontaneous circulation before even getting to the hospital. It's time limited and survival to hospital discharge is about three times greater compared with those who aren't found gasping. So in a review from 2010, these researchers identified 32 cases of auto-resuscitation from 16 different countries over a 26-year period from 1982 to 2008. These were all considered very okay. low quality, meaning maybe it was auto-resuscitation, maybe it was just the person, you know, missed something and, the, and they had been declared dead too early or whatever. Of those 32 cases, auto-resuscitation did not occur beyond seven minutes after failed CPR. So after waiting about seven to 10 minutes, if you hadn't seen something, a return of a pulse, a return of agonal breathing, you weren't likely to see any kind of auto-resuscitation. If you did see something within that seven minute period, there was a chance that more functionality could at least be temporarily regained. Of those ones who recovered in that seven minute period, about half of them, got good neurological recovery, like our soup-eating Lazarus, and the other half died shortly after they auto-resuscitated. They kind of came back, did the, oh, the treasure is buried in, and then fell back dead. Uh -oh. um, <laughs> Where? Come back! <laughs> so this case, while fascinating and fun to talk about, there's three important points that I want to touch on here. 
decisions, the first point, decisions about whether or not it's appropriate to start CPR should be made in advance. These are called advanced care directives. Do you want chest compressions? Do you want electric shocks if they're indicated? Do you want to be intubated? If you want this, tell your relatives, tell anyone who might be involved with caring for you, both in and out of the hospital, and if possible, write it down somewhere. This is known as a living will, right? You don't want us to have to try and make these decisions on the fly. Point number two, the decision to stop CPR is really challenging clinically. We don't want to just give up on people and say, nope, there's no way you're going to survive. But we also don't want to subject people where they come back and have even more problems and are unlikely to survive beyond a couple minutes. So it's widely accepted that asystole or no heartbeat for longer than 20 minutes without reversible factors is a reasonable cause for stopping CPR. And that's the far end of the scale. Most people will code anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. And beyond that, it's unlikely to recover as you're probably going to have hypoxic brain damage. The decision to stop is usually based on a combination of previously expressed patient preferences, that advanced directive, how much time elapsed before CPR was initiated, how many different other diseases are going on, known as comorbidity, and how long the clinical physician has been resuscitating you. As you mentioned earlier, Santosh, this 20-minute period will be extended if somebody's intoxicated or hypothermic or has a pulmonary embolism, all of which can kind of throw off the ability of someone to quickly return to spontaneous circulation. So you should not be looking to just prolong life, but to achieve a good quality of life. And point three, the Lazarus phenomenon with its background and possible countermeasures. So as we've said, it's a rare condition. It's presumably widely underreported, at least in France and Canada. The precise mechanisms are unknown, but could include anything from the myocardium being stunned, hyperkalemia, which can slow the electrical impulses of the heart, delayed action of drugs, or simply vital signs that are undetectable by current medical devices. So what countermeasures can you take to make sure that you don't have a Lazarus phenomenon? Well, keep your EKG on for at least 10 minutes after you've had prolonged cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So after you've done CPR, even when you've stopped, you leave the monitor running for 10 minutes to watch for this. You get an ABG as soon as possible to see if the blood is flowing and if oxygen is being taken. And you do a capnography, kind of the breath test and see is the patient breathing at all. And you can do an echo to see is the heart beating even at an undetectable level. All of these yeah. will help prevent. So again, this is very rare. It's not something you should expect for your family member. But it is something that is worth commenting on and happens often enough that we need to watch out for it. Dude, <laughs> uh, I, I think this fits nicely into world of tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's just dead today, alive tomorrow kind of thing. Um, but it's kind of fascinating because, Josh, you and I have gone over this, actually, that there's actually a broad history in medical science about just this making sure and determining you know when someone is dead and when it's time to give up versus you know if we have to plow on 
Um, it's an important thing. And by the way, it's going to change the technologies that you mentioned, EKG, echo, capnography. This is going to change our, our definition of give up is going to alter as these methods get more refined, as we get newer technologies. Um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, they didn't mention EEG, right? Like checking the brain activity at the bedside, because right now we can't do that you know, expeditiously, we can't just like slap on a bunch of sensors and just, you know, get brainwaves. So that might be something in the future that, that we would have that would tell us that, Oh, you know what? Hearts down, lungs down, but you know, the brain's still kicking. We gotta, we gotta keep trying, you know, and that might be a handful of these folks who, who have, go through the Lazarus effect where they actually still have some cerebral activity that we can't detect below the neck. And until uh, Sergio Canavero perfects his head transplant, which I'm still no. waiting on update. I'm still waiting on our Futurama <laughs> head. Our Futurama I head think... and, our, and our cybernetic bodies. That's my world <laughs> of tomorrow. I think you might be waiting. Uh, well, sorry. The the head transplants might happen. I think we might be waiting on Dr. Canavera for a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> well, if you'd like to know more about how how death was previously detected, you can listen to this season's Halloween episode, Butt of Corpse. And we go into some of the fun ways that was done. But that's it for this week's Journal Club. I hope you enjoyed the third or, I don't know, maybe fourth. I've done a lot of these World of Tomorrow episodes because it's fun. Moral, and moral, moral, So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and Friends. Our theme music is created by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your vaccine as long as you're able. And if you're lucky enough to you know, be able to take a road trip somewhere or have one of those health passports and a country that will accept you, well then, happy travels. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.